From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and with me is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and together we are the Space Nuts. G'day, Fred. (laughs) And they don't come any nuttier than us. (laughs) (laughs) And it's a good way to be. Yeah. Uh, Now, today we're uh, going to look at that uh, story that's sort of erupted in uh, recent times, the discovery of three Earth-like planets. Uh, which is, uh, I'm guessing, a, a pretty rare deal. Uh, we're going to also look at uh, some of the things that uh, people can look at themselves uh, in, in the sky over, over coming weeks. There's going to be some spectacular things to see, uh, including one of my favourite places that I've never been and will never go, but uh, I'm captivated by it. And mapping the forests, uh, to be more specific, weighing them. Uh, a satellite that will be capable of doing that, and I, I don't know how they come up with enough noughts to weigh uh, a, you know, the, the world's forests, but they're going to do it. But first, Fred, uh, these Earth-like planets, uh, which are, um, well, they're orbiting, I think, a dwarf star. Uh, what's so significant about these ones? It, uh, it certainly got uh, people talking in the astronomical world. Uh, indeed, it has, Andrew. And y- y- yes, you're right, because we're we're kind of getting used to uh, hearing discoveries of uh, of more planets around other stars being discovered. And that's one of these things that uh, has just become a part of everyday astronomical life. But you put your finger on it uh, at the end of your intro there. The, the reason why these uh, planets are of interest is because they are... Uh, orbiting uh, not actually just a dwarf star. This is an ultra cool dwarf star, um, not not cool because it's uh, you know it's, like the, it's, like the Fonzie star. Yeah, ultra that's cool. right. Ultra cool. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's actually referring to its temperature. Uh, ultra cool dwarf stars are thought to be very common. They're maybe seventeen percent or so of all stars in the neighbourhood of the sun. Are these um, these stars that really sit at the very bottom end of the spectrum of what you call a star? They, in physical size, are not that much bigger than the planet Jupiter, although they they have more mass. They they weigh something like 80, 80 Jupiter masses. Um, and the uh, point about them is uh, it's the coolness. <laughs> so the, the the fact that their temperature is low means that they are relatively dim. They, they glow red. They're a bit like, um, you know, something that's red hot. It's not been heated enough to be white hot like a, uh, like a, a glowing... Uh, I was, I was going to say poker because that's what we always used to talk about. But these days nobody knows what a poker is. Um, a, a piece of metal that's been heated to high temperature will glow white, but if it's rather cooler, it will glow red, yes. what we call red hot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same with stars. The hottest stars are, are very white in colour. Uh, but the uh, the cooler ones are red, and these ultra cool dwarf stars are like that. 
Uh, they are um, interesting to planet hunters because if you have planets going around an ultra-cool dwarf star, uh, it means that you've got a much better chance of actually observing the planet itself because it's nowhere near as 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 uh, as lost in the in the brilliant light of its parent star, which is what you would get for a conventional star. Uh, people usually describe trying to see the, a planet uh, right next to a normal star as being like trying to spot the glow of the cigarette of the lighthouse keeper when he's standing right next to the light, ah. uh, uh, and because you know it's just. It's basically just swamped by the light that's coming from the star. But with ultra-cool dwarf stars, you actually have a better chance because you, you've got this uh, object that, that is not shining so brightly, and it's easier to pick out the, the stars from the glare of that. So just, um, just to give us a little bit of a parameter to work with, how does this star compare to, compare to our own in terms of brilliance and, and yeah, temperature? Yeah, it, it's much, much fainter, probably right. millions of times fainter than the sun. Uh, its temperature, um, I'm taking a guess at this, but I would guess it's round about uh, 2,500 to 3,000 degrees, whereas our sun's surface is about, it's getting up to 6,000 degrees, okay. so much hotter. So um, melanoma is going to be a lesser problem on a planet. <laughs> not stuff. necessarily, oh, actually, okay, because of the these, UV. Dwarf, these dwarf uh, uh, stars um, are more active. They tend to chuck out more uh, sort of particle radiation. So, you, you, you know, you're going to get streams of high-energy particles coming from them. And, there's of course, always that's, a hitch. Always there's always a hitch. But that's one of the things that feeds into... Um, our guess as to whether there might be life on on these planets. Uh, you're right; they're more or less Earth-sized. These the, the planets that have been discovered around uh, around this star. Uh, however, they orbit uh, much much closer than our planets do to the sun. In fact, the the two nearest of these uh, planets go around in uh, one of them goes around its parent star in one and a half days. That's one and a half Earth days. So it is, that's the length of its year. Mm. <laughs> um, and the other one's 2.4 days. Very, very close in. Um, we don't actually know too much about the, the, the period, the rotation period of the, um, or sorry, the revolution period of the, of the third one, but it's, it's uh, much longer. Um, so the, the, the um, structure of this little solar system really resembles not so much our solar system as the system of satellites around the planet Jupiter, because you've got this little dwarf, uh, this little dwarf um, uh, star in the middle, not much, not much bigger than Jupiter, and these things whizzing around in, in very short times, which is what happens with Jupiter's uh, four bright moons. Um, they uh, are nevertheless of interest because they're not quite uh, in the habitable zone of this star. They're just slightly closer uh, to the star than the what we call the Goldilocks zone, that region where it's not too hot and not too cold, but just right for liquid mm. liquid water. Uh, they're a little bit nearer, but that doesn't rule out the possibility of liquid water maybe near, near the poles of these, of these planets. Um, they are, were discovered actually by a small telescope. Uh, that's kind of what's happening these days, that uh, people are using relatively small telescopes just to look for the dip in the light of a star as a planet crosses in front of it. And this, this telescope is called uh, TRAPPIST, uh, which is an intriguing name. It's Belgian. 
And I think the best beers that you can buy in Belgium, Belgium are produced by the Trappist uh, monasteries. Uh, but Trappist, of course, is an acronym, Transiting Planets. I can't remember what the rest of it is. <laughs> so I think it's small telescope at the end. And it is. I think it's only something like a you know, 0.6 or 0.7 metre telescope. Much, much smaller in diameter than something like our Anglo-Australian telescope. Mm. Anyway, this, um, this uh, planetary system is being uh, known as TRAPPIST-1 because it's the first one that's been discovered by TRAPPIST. And I think we should expect to find more. It's a very interesting piece of research uh, carried out by mostly by people at the University of Liège in, in Belga Belgium and uh, with um, a great deal of excitement because it is the first time we've seen planets around one of these ultra-cool dwarf stars and and three earth likes in, in, in yes, one star in, which in, in, in itself yeah. has to be a bit unusual that, that, that's right uh, there's one little, little final quirk on this andrew uh, that i noticed when i checked up where this uh, where this star is and uh, this hasn't been commented on by uh, by the authors of the of the research but it turns out that this star is on the from our perspective on Earth, it's, uh, it actually is on what we call the ecliptic, which is the sun's path through the sky. And that means that if there are any intelligent beings on the planets of TRAPPIST-1, and they have the same sort of capabilities that we have to observe the stars, they would know about the Earth, because to them, the Earth would cross in front of the disk of the sun, because ah. they're, they're seeing it. So they see our transit. Yeah, yeah, they're seeing our transit. Wow. So there you are. However, um, the good news is uh, they're 40 light years away. With present day technology, I estimate that would take round about 4 million years uh, for, um, for us to get there and hopefully 4 million years for anybody to get from there uh, to us if they wanted ah, to look if at they, it. If they've developed the technology that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago where yeah. we were going to go to the Alpha Centauri uh, system uh, in only maybe 20 years... Yeah, that's then, right. So that could change the game. It would. Uh, it would mean we could do the journey in 200 years. It's mm. still uh, long enough, you know, it's longer than a lifetime, but it's, it's becoming more interesting in terms of a, an expedition to, to go and have a look. Yes. Mm. And who knows what technology will do in the future. Exactly. Although I think you're more doubtful about it than me, but I'm a science fiction <laughs> crazy man. <laughs> All right, uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory and me, Andrew Dunkley. Next up, Fred, uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the things that we can actually see from Earth in our backyards that are in the sky over coming weeks. And uh, you know, sometimes they, they jump out at us and sometimes they're there and we don't notice, like Halley's Comet. Uh, but um, you've got a few things in mind. Indeed, that's right. We're, um, we're at a very um, auspicious time, I guess, in the astronomical calendar. Um, uh, uh, not very long ago, uh, at the beginning uh, of May, uh, the 9th of May, in fact, uh, we had a fairly rare event, the transit of Mercury across the sun. It wasn't actually visible from Australian skies, but it's one of those things that uh, reminds everybody that um, you know we live in a solar system that uh, that that runs by celestial clockwork, and it ties in with what we've just been talking about because what we saw uh, from those places where it was observable was the the tiny dot of the planet Mercury uh, silhouetted against the sun for about seven hours. It takes about seven hours to cross the disk 
uh, of the sun. Uh, Mercury, of course, the, the smallest of all the planets, uh, the one nearest to the sun, still a, a lot further out than the uh, than the planets of Trappist One, uh, but uh, but we when we observe that transit, we're essentially seeing, seeing the same process by which Trappist One was discovered. The, the, mm. the planets around it, the the, the tiny dot of uh, of Mercury across the disk of the sun, um, nowhere near as significant or as rare as a transit of Venus. There are roughly. Um, 13 transits of Mercury per century, whereas uh, transits of Venus occur in pairs. There's uh, two separated by eight years, and then it's more than 100 years before the next pair. Yes, and, and uh, of interest to Australians, because that's what Captain James Cook was sent to observe before he discovered the east coast of Australia. Uh, indeed, that's right, yes. So he observed from Tahiti. Um, and, and that was all about the, the idea, actually, that came from Edmund Halley uh, in the late 17th century, that you could use a transit of Venus, less so a transit of Mercury, but more especially Venus, because Venus is nearer to the Earth, could use a transit of Venus basically to measure the distance between the Earth and the Sun, because Mm. that was not known at that time. And one of the interesting things about the way planets work is that once you know the distance of one planet from the Sun, you know them all, because there's a strict relationship between um, the the distance of a planet and how long it takes to go around the sun. We know how long the other planets take to go around the sun. So once you've found the distance to one, namely the Earth, then then you've got them all. Uh, so it's very important research. And uh, yes, indeed, James Cook was a participant in those studies. So the transit of, Mina, uh, of Mercury, long gone. The next one's in 2019. Again, unfortunately, not visible from Australia. The next one we will see from Australia will be in 2032. So that's one for your diary. Uh, <laughs> hopefully you and I will talk about it. Um, Look, I'll be quite... Honestly, Fred, there's somebody geeky enough in the world to keep a diary that yeah. goes that far ahead of time, sure. Yes, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, what else can we see in the sky at the moment? Um, Mars? Yes, indeed. Mars is... Uh, I, I, there are two um, very bright planets in the sky at the moment. In fact, you know what? Three... I, I went outside um, the other morning and I looked east and you're going to tell me I'm wrong, but I saw, might have been in the afternoon now that I mention it, but I saw uh, just as yeah, it was it was during sunset um, in the east, an orange light. Yeah, there you go. Well, is you've that Mars? Because yeah. yeah. I thought, oh, I wonder. Yeah, no, you're quite right. So um, that's exactly the place to look. Mars is more or less rising at sunset at the moment. Um, very prominent, uh, a golden star, golden-looking star in the eastern sky. If you have binoculars, you should be able to tell that it's not a point of light, that it has a disk. You won't be able to see any markings on it, but you should be able to see the, the disk of Mars. Um, it's, it's right next to its rival, uh, the, the star Antares. The name Antares means rival of Mars. Oh. And uh, Antares is actually the heart of the scorpion. It's the brightest star in the scorpion. The reason why it's the rival of Mars is that it's on the ecliptic. It's near where Mars uh, uh, will actually uh, go th- uh, pass through on its, on its course around the, around the sun. Uh, but it's also a red star. So it's a reddish object. And there are times when it's hard to separate them. But this is not one of those times because at the moment, Mars is much, much brighter than Antares. It's bright because it's approaching its uh, closest uh, distance from 
the earth for this sort of season. Um, it's, in, it's coming up to what we call opposition. So the 22nd of May has Mars at opposition. That means that it is opposite the sun. So um, uh, we are seeing uh, Mar the sun in one direction and directly opposite we see Mars. And of course, if you work it out, that means that Mars and the earth are close together. Mm. Uh, they're actually not at their closest though until the 31st of May. And that's because partly because Mars doesn't have a circular orbit and also because the orbits are tilted slightly with respect to one another. So we're at a time when Mars will be at its closest, very, very bright. In fact, it's brighter than, uh, slightly brighter than Jupiter, which is normally the second brightest of all the planets. Uh, Jupiter also visible in the sky at the moment. Um, uh, it's pretty well due north, northwest at sunset and gradually uh, moves across the sky, sets round about midnight at the moment, uh, a little bit later perhaps. Uh, but uh, the, the bright object that you can see in the northern half of the sky is Jupiter, unmistakable. Again, worth a look with binoculars because you might well pick out uh, some of its four bright moons, uh, especially if you've got high power, perhaps 10, 10 magnification binoculars. Yeah, I remember the first time I ever observed that with, with just a um, zoom camera, I think, uh, uh, and, and seeing the actual moons of another planet that yeah. blew, blew me away it was it just, is it's phenomenal it is yeah. it's just the weirdest yeah. feeling to, to, be able to, to be able to see something so far away and and be able to define it with the naked eye that just yeah incredible uh, it's um i it's the same sort of thrill i feel as well um and of course the one planet that really rewards looking through a telescope uh, is saturn and Saturn is in our skies at the moment as well. It's not quite as easy to find as, as Jupiter and Mars, but uh, the way to find it is uh, go back to that um, uh, pairing of Mars and Antares uh, rising in the east in the early evening. And if you look at that, you'll see another brightish object beneath them. It looks just like a whitish star, um, but forming a triangle with Mars and Antares, and below them is the planet Saturn. Uh, once again, binoculars with a magnification of about 10, are good enough to show that this is not something that is circular, that there's a slight elongation to what it is you're looking at. But you do need a telescope, a decent telescope, to see to see the, um, the rings of Saturn. Once again, Saturn is also coming up to opposition. That's why it's close to Mars in the sky. Uh, it means that um, in uh, early June, it will be directly opposite the sun and, again, will be at its brightest. Mm. Now, you're talking about looking north, looking east... Etc. Etc. Uh, in terms of uh, observing astronomical things or parts of other parts of our solar system, doesn't matter where you are on the planet. Technically, does it? No, that, that's right. Um, because uh, well, uh, if if you're in the northern hemisphere, um, you see the planets uh, as you see the sun passing to the south of uh, of your vantage point rather than the north. So uh, you will still see Mars uh, rising in the east. Uh, but you but need it goes to look that away. Yeah, that's right. You need to you need to look to the south to see to see Jupiter. Right. Uh, so if you're in the northern hemisphere, the bright object in your in the southern half of your sky is the planet Jupiter. And hello from the southern hemisphere. Yes, indeed. Yes, we're looking up to you as always. As always, that's right. You're listening to Space Nuts with Fred Watson and Andrew Dunkley. Now, Fred, to a fascinating little uh, mission that um, is going to weigh the world's forests. Now, I 
am imagining these giant scales being put into space <laughs> and Earth being balanced on one side, but uh, it's obviously not that. They're, um, I'm thinking, going to use some very high-tech electronics to figure all this out. Uh, indeed, that's right. There is some. Uh, you're not that far off the mark, actually, because when you think of uh, of a scale pan on on the weighing scale, that's a bit like what this satellite looks like. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, and that's because it's got this gigantic deployable radar dish. It's a radar dish, 12 meters in diameter. So you know, just a shallow dish that's used to uh, beam radar uh, down to the surface of the Earth. Um, it's planned that this will be launched in 2021. It is a mission with the, I suppose, fairly uh, obvious name of biomass, because biomass is uh, what trees are. Yes. <laughs> this is going to weigh the trees. Um, and the, the spacecraft will be um, actually built in the UK. That's uh, one of the interesting things about it. Uh, so 2021, the biomass mission will launch. What's special about it? Well, it's equipped with this gigantic 12 meter diameter radar dish um, and will basically pulse uh, radio waves down to the Earth's surface. But the difference between this and your, your average radar satellite is that this will use something called the P-band radar. Um, I think the P-band is a technical term um, which refers to a radar that uses a relatively long wavelength radio radiation. In fact, the wavelength is 70 centimeters if you want the nitty gritty detail. And by using that P band uh, uh, part of the radio spectrum, uh, the radar basically penetrates the canopy, the, the leaf canopy of the trees. Uh, normal radar would bounce back off the, off the canopy of, of a forest, but the P band radar doesn't. It ignores the leaves but it sees the wood. Oh. And so um, that's what this is all about. They will, uh, by making many orbits of the Earth, uh, the uh, operating scientists of biomass will uh, basically build up a three-dimensional picture of the trees in the Earth's forests. It's an extraordinary thing to think about. They, they will uh, build up this picture of, of sort of naked trees because the, 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 the leaves and everything uh, are invisible to, to the P-band radar, but the trees themselves show up. Why um, if, are we doing this, Fred? It's all about working out the resources uh, of the Earth um, in terms of understanding our planet. So, for example, it will measure... Uh, one of the things that the, the mission will do will be to measure the amount of carbon that's locked up uh, in the Earth's forests and, uh, and maybe to, to see, you know, what the potential of the Earth's forests is for carbon absorption. Um, they uh, expect a five-year mission, and apparently that uh, gives uh, uh, the chance to sample uh, uh, at least eight growth cycles in the world's forests. I'm not a, uh, a bio, uh, I'm actually not not anybody who who, who knows too much about the uh, the natural world in terms of growth cycles, uh, but um, but the mission planners, of course, clearly do, and that actually means that uh, there's there's a lot of um, uh, a lot of interest in this because uh, we'll see how these forests regenerate, how they grow, and and what what happens to them in the end. There's one little quirky bit. Mm. Uh, it's the very far north of America. And northern Europe, they have to switch the radar off because ah. there are international telecommunication rules 
that tell you you can't use radar in those places. Why not? Because there is military priority for the detection of missiles. So the radar switches off while it goes over the poles and then turns back on again. However, there aren't actually that many trees up there. No, so, not really. So it's not really a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and well, and although, in fact, the... I was there used say, to be a lot of trees around um, the southern uh, pole, didn't they? Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, it, that's billions right. Billions of years in, ago. In, in, yes, in, in millions of years ago, there, there was certainly a different climate altogether. Um, what, it's not quite um, true to say there are no trees up in these northern areas. But what is true is that the statistics that we know already from, from ground-based and aerial surveys are fairly robust. They, they actually um, are, are well, pretty well determined. Uh, and it, it turns out that the major regions of uncertainty where you really want to make the measurements are in the tropics. And that's where uh, the spacecraft can, can look with impunity down at the Earth's surface and, and not be restricted by military considerations. Mm. And no truth to the rumour that the head of this project is Theresa Green. <laughs> Do you know, I used to know a Theresa Green. I went to school with a Theresa Green. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Probably not the same person. Not the same one, no. Mm. Well, that's fascinating. Well, that'll be... Um, when, when's that likely to happen? In... 2021, the launch schedule. Oh, not too start. far away, then. Not too far away, no. You can put that one in your diary. Yes, yes. or you can put it in yours and just tell me next time. <laughs> Fred, as always, great to catch up with you. A great pleasure, Andrew. Good to talk again and uh, see you next time. OK, that's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thank you for listening again to our Space Nuts podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and send us your messages. We love to hear from you. And we will see you again next time. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.